Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. My name's Adam Sokol, and if this is your first time tuning in, thanks so much for joining. If you've been here for the past couple weeks, so glad to have you back. Really just overjoyed about today's episode. Uh, today is what I will call the first of a two part episode, really. Uh, today's interview is with Kimberly Jones. Next week's episode is going to be with Keely Siegel. They are writing partners. And before I get into a book recommendation for this week and what Kim and I talk about, uh, first, just a short story for you guys. So as many of you may know, I used to work at a company where part of my job was interviewing authors there. And several years ago at a library conference, I sat down with two authors named Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel. They had written a book, a young adult book called I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. And I remember reading it before I met them and just being blown away by this book. And we talk about the book a little bit in our conversation with Kim, so I'm not going to get into it now, but I just remember going to my director's office and saying, this is going to be a New York Times bestseller. And I talk about how I did that a few other times uh, in my history at that, that company during the interview. And it took a little while, but I ended up being right. Uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. But I remember reading I'm Not Dying With You Tonight and being like, wow, I can't believe two people wrote this. It's incredible. Uh, and... Then I sat down with Kim and Geely, authors of this very serious book about two teenage girls, one white, one black, surviving uh, kind of a, a race riot, really. And I remember sitting down with these, you know, Kim is African-American, Geely is white. And I just remember sitting down with them and being like, okay, this is going to be a very serious conversation. And they were the goofiest, silliest, funniest people I've ever come across. And since that time, I have gotten to know them so well to the point where Kim and Geely both have jokingly talked about being like extended members of my family, like with the rest of my siblings. And it's just so much joy. I truly love these two people so much. I've gotten to hang out with them in Atlanta for a book event and we've done tons of virtual events and all sorts of stuff. I just, I appreciate these two humans so, so much. And so Kim and I today talk about she has a bunch of random collections of things. And I almost don't want to tell you, I'm not even going to tell you the things that we talk about. One of them is books. That's not a crazy thing, but everything else I'm going to let her tell you all about and you'll hear in real time as it happens. But she is a collector of things. And 
What's happening, I'm noticing with every one of these episodes, is each episode starts out about what a thing this author is passionate about. And then there's becoming these secondary conversations. You know, with Brad Meltzer, it was about nostalgia. You know, with Mallory O'Meara, it was about body positivity. And with Kim, what I'm realizing and what I realized as I was editing this episode is Kim, these collections that she has is about the different characters and the different versions of herself that she sees in her mind and that she ends up writing about and writing as. And it's a really interesting conversation about legacy and how she's collecting these things to leave behind for her family and how you know we think of our great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents as our ancestors and how one day she's going to be those ancestors for someone else. It's a really great conversation and I can't wait for you to listen to it. And then next week, Geely and I would sit down and I'll, I'll wait until next week to tell you what that's all about. But I adore them both. I couldn't possibly just interview one of them and I couldn't interview them uh, together because they have very different interests that we talk about. So two different episodes that you're going to love both of them equally, I guarantee it. Uh, Kim, in addition to writing with Geely, they both also write their own books. And Kim had a book that came out uh, at the beginning of 2022 called How We Can Win, which was based off of this incredibly viral video that she did with the same title, this incredibly powerful speech that went mega viral all over the world. And she ended up being on The Daily Show. And it was talked about by John Oliver as well. And just she was all over the place. How We Can Win is this extremely impactful book about the impacts of systemic racism and how in her formative years in Chicago, she became a lifelong devotee to justice and all this incredible stuff. And so along those lines, if you haven't read How We Can Win by Kim yet, definitely do that. I will put a link in the show notes for you to get it. But there's another book that I also think is extremely important that came out at the beginning of 2021 called 400 Souls, A Community History of African America. And it's from 1619 to 2019. It was edited by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Dr. Blaine, or Dr. Keisha Blaine, excuse me. And it is a series of stories that is written by different African-American authors. And each story takes, I believe, a decade in time from 1619 to 2019. And they tell a different story of African-American history. It's extremely important. It's extremely powerful. Won a whole bunch of awards. And I highly, highly recommend you check out 400 Souls. So, okay. Just wanted to put that out there. Thank you to everyone who continues to send me wonderful feedback across social media and through email. As a reminder, you can email me any reviews you leave on Apple or anywhere else. Just screenshot it and I will send you some customized book recommendations. Or if you just want to follow me on Instagram and TikTok, you can find me at Passions and Prologues. And again, the email is passionsandprologues at gmail. Com. Okay, that's everything. Thanks for sticking with me for a little bit of a longer intro. I just wanted to give you that brief short story of my my origin story of meeting Kim and Geely, two people who I sincerely and truly love as human beings. So, okay, let's get into my conversation with Kimberly Jones on passions and prologues. Kim, what, what we're talking about collecting today? That's super broad. So, just like what what type of collections do you have? What is it about collecting? Let's let's just get into it. Like, what is it about collecting that you love? I love it so much. Okay, so 
When I was a little uh, mini Kim, living, running around my parents' house, causing drama um, and being awful as younger siblings are, because I'm the baby of my siblings. um, So I made it my life to make everyone's life interesting. I always loved my auto. I grew up loving my older siblings stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they always had like re- things that seemed retro to me. Right. Cause I'm like seven and they're 17. I hadn't lived in life a lot. So things that were like five or six years old felt retro to me. Right. And I just always loved their stuff. Like that's why I was so annoying to them is like, I always wanted their things. I'm like, yeah, this Barbie is cool or whatever, but like my brother has rock'em sock'em robots that they don't even like make anymore. And I want to play with that. I want mm-hmm. the old stuff. And so as, as a young kid, I just really fell in love with old things. So Here's one of, I had one of the things at the ready that I have, one of my favorites. I should not have blurred my background. No, you're good. It's okay. So do you remember the show on MTV, Yo! MTV Raps? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people don't know this, but Yo! MTV Raps made collector's cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of all the people who had been on their show. Yeah. And I started collecting them. And just like any other collection, they came in like a little pack of five uh-huh. with a strip of bubble gum that was hard as a brick and almost broke your teeth. I had collected them. I keep them in this box. I really need to find like someplace else to put them. Mm-hmm. But I have all of them. That's I am not missing one. And I have had these since I was like, I started collecting them when I was maybe about 10 or something around there Uh and um i collected them all the way through to when i was 19 when the show ended and i have every single one of them i'll show you one if it doesn't get like caught up in the blur and they are in mint condition like they are great shape like here is dr dre and ed lover who hosted the show Uh oh my god there's so many good ones here's digital underground and this one has a young tupac in it because remember he was in that band amazing Um, yeah it's just like i have all these cards here's a young krs one the entirety of the yo mtv raps collectibles but i also have five mint condition cabbage patch dolls and One of my Cabbage Patch dolls, so my parents worked for Sears, right? Mm -hmm. And my mom worked at the Sears Tower. My dad was the supervisor of one of the Sears warehouses. So the first set of Cabbage Patch dolls that came in in like 1983 or something like that, Mm -hmm. my dad took the first one off the line and bought it because they could, back then at Sears, they could buy Sears products like at cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you works for the company. My dad took the first one off the line, bought it, and I still have it. That's amazing. So for like these, like the stuff that you're collecting, I know you have other stuff you collect as well. Like so much stuff. (laughs) So when you started collecting it, like with the UMTV Raps cards, like, is it a like a need to be a completionist? Is it just like kind of the novelty of having something that is like a uh, like I have a friend who he loves really good whiskey, but like it's almost like he loves the chase for finding a good bottle of whiskey almost yeah. more than like enjoying it. Like, yeah. Is it the hunt for you? Like what is it about collecting that kind of intrigues you so much? You know, for me, it's very specific to like my personal aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So it's not even things like, it's funny. I don't even know if the things that I have other people would want. (laughs) I don't even know if other people want this, my treasure trove of junk. But it's, it's really like, I am your typical Pisces. I'm a very sentimental person. I'm a very emotional person. I'm a crybaby. Mm -hmm. I get like overwhelmed with emotion about sentimental things and like, 
all of these things that I have have a special place in my heart for some moment in time. Yeah. Like growing up, I loved hip hop and I was there, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm one of those people that don't care about my age. I'm 46 years old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I grew up in the eighties and the nineties, you know, during the golden era of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And it was the soundtrack to my life and Yo MTV raps. There were two shows, Yo MTV raps and the basement were basically like my go-to. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was the Instagram of the day, you know, mm-hmm. it's kept up with everything. And so for me, like the Yo MTV Raps cards, I hold on to those so tightly because it reminds me of a very fun period in my life. It reminds mm-hmm. me of my middle school years and my high school years and even my late elementary years. And like, I thought I wanted to be a rapper. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I would be in, I've been thinking about writing a middle grade book about this. I haven't yeah. decided yet. I've been thinking about writing a middle grade book. And I'm about to take you back, Adam. I know you're a little younger than me, but I, I'm about to take you back. Remember yeah. the era of the talent show? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had talent shows. Yeah. Right. See, I don't know if do kids, I don't think kids have talent shows. I don't know. what. The, I mean, I'm guessing they might still, but like, yeah, ours was like, I mean, I went to a really small, I graduated with like 48 kids in my class. So I was at a tiny high school, but we did. We absolutely had talent shows. Like. I remember somebody did, oh man, I'm going to call him out. I hope he listens. It's my brother and his best friend did the, <laughs> speaking of hip hop, they did Jump by Crisscross. Cross. And they like, they lip synced the whole thing. That was their like, they did not win. Anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry, Jay, if you're listening. Exactly. So there was something about that era of the talent show that was so much fun that allowed kids to express themselves. And to your point, you didn't necessarily have to be that talented to be yeah. in a talent show, right? Yeah. You just got up there, you had fun, your friends cheered you on and gave your mom and dad somewhere to go and watch their kids like bounce yeah. around on the stage, play play the flute poorly or like lip sync to crisscross or whatever it was that you were that you were doing. And so it's like it's funny you brought that's perfect that you brought that up because that's what it was. I was the lip sync queen. I like did everybody from like Run DMC to the Beastie Boys mm-hmm. to like Queen Latifah, MC Light, like all these people. I was always in the talent show. I was always lip syncing until I got to like middle school and mm-hmm. thought that I could write my own raps. And I had a bunch of friends who I convinced to be in a rap group with me. Incredible. And none of them could rap. So I had a notebook where I wrote everyone's raps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What everyone's raps, and then we would perform. We had my mom. My mom was like the best manager, stage mom ever. She went and got the big packs of like iron-on letters, and she ironed on a bunch of t-shirts with our like rap names on the yeah. back, and like all this stuff on the front. And so, like, to things like this, like, take me back to that time. Yeah, it, it, it's very warm and fuzzy for me. And even like, especially like now that my parents are passed away, like having those dolls that my dad bought me over because I have all mm-hmm. the Cabbage Patch dolls that my dad bought me over the years. Yeah, even like Cabbage Patch used to make these dolls called the um, Cabbage Animals or something like that. It was mm-hmm. called, but it was like cats and dogs and stuff. And they had like these weird bodies look like they're like something. <laughs> yeah. Like a, a, a weird horror movie. But I even had those. And so it makes me think about my dad. Yeah. Um, all that. So all the junk that I have is like super sentimental to me. But I will say this. 
I do understand their rarity because for some reason, the things that I do love that are nostalgic to me, I'm like looking on eBay and all these places and they have price value because <clears throat> they meant something to me. They mean something to someone else. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about like remembering a moment in time from this type of thing. Cause I actually, I remember, so we had a, an uncle, my uncle Mylan, who uh, passed away, I think like a year and a half ago at this point, but he he lived in Detroit and he had partial custody of my cousin, Caitlin. And basically what he would do is he would come here every other weekend. He would come back to Lorraine where we live and he would pick up Caitlin and they would stay with us on the weekends. And so she was like our little sister and they were there and it was amazing. And he was a general manager of a couple of McDonald's. And so he would bring the McDonald's toys and like glasses back when like they would do, and they may still, I don't, I mean, I don't look at kids toys stuff anymore, but like they would do the partnerships with movies and like yeah. so they was so we had the full collection of the Flintstones glasses. They're like um they literally look like um like you'd get them at like bedrock and they're small glasses. I don't know why I'm using my hands, it's not a podcast, but like they were like small drinking glasses and there were those and there was like five of them and then there was also the it was batman it was either batman and batman forever and batman and robin one of the two it was with the the riddler when jim carrey played the riddler same thing like they had these real slick looking kids drinking glasses and we would also like get the toys like he brought us the transform there were these speaking of the 80s they were like these transformers that were like they transformed from like a thing of french fries into like a an actual transformer we had all of those like I, my mom and dad might still have one of the Flintstones glasses because like they were like solid glass. Like, yeah, and exactly. Like, I'm sure if I looked on eBay, they're probably worth money. But like exactly what you said, like I would go over to my parents' house even as recently as like a couple years ago, and I would drink out of those, and I would think my uncle Mylan because I was like, it's a moment in time. Yeah, and it's like, but those. I mean, that was kind of the only thing that we. Like, we I wouldn't even say we collected more so that like my uncle just brought them and my mom was probably like, great, more stuff to put in our, in our house, but we love them. And like I said, we use those glasses forever, but like, were there, you know, you told me before we started recording actually like last week, you have other stuff that you also collect. So we've got the, we've got the cards, we've got the cabbage patch dolls. What, what else is Kim Jones collecting? Well, I mean, obvi books, right? Yeah, of course. So I have a boat ton of, of signed books. But again, it's funny. I'm thinking, you know, and thinking about what you just said about, like, it wasn't even like you set out to collect these things. Right. You just have them. I think with a lot of my stuff in the beginning, like now I'm more like conscious. I'm like following the Sotheby's Instagram page and stuff. Like that. <laughs> but like a, a lot of this stuff just started being like really just stuff that I like just loved. And then I never let go of it. Um, and it's funny because like between me and my siblings, like I'm not even the pack rat. Like my sister Gigi is definitely the pack rat. Like <laughs> she has like her third grade report card or whatever. Incredible. Um, I am the person who likes a really, really clean aesthetic and like I'm constantly like throwing stuff out, but it would be just these few things that I'm like, no, I have to keep my mm-hmm. wrap scars and my cabbage patch dolls and this thing and that thing. And so a lot of it is just love. And so it's the same way with books, right? I just love books. I'm a reader. I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a bookseller for a very long time, camp counselor, all these spaces in which, you know, books were just like part of my life. And so even in just being a bookseller, like the amount of people Mm -hmm. who just come to the bookstore to do a signing, you know, and it's like here to do a signing and like, I'm going to get it. And so, for example, like one of my favorite books in my book collection is Norton Juster came for the 50th anniversary of Phantom Tollbooth, mm-hmm. Little Top of Stories, when I was managing the store. And they had made this special 
anniversary, you know, 50th anniversary special edition copy of the Phantom Toll Booth. And Norton Jester was making one stop. He was just coming to Little Shop. That's amazing. And that was it. So there's not a lot of signed copies of this mm-hmm. 50th anniversary edition. And it's it's annotated and it's like this amazing edition yeah. of um, Phantom Tobles. And I have it signed from Norton Jester. But one of my favorite signed books and books is where I'm now like really like intentional about collecting. Yeah. Like I am following, I follow book sites. I, if there's a legendary author coming to town, I will hunt down via all of the the book websites, mm-hmm. a first edition, first printing of one of their more legendary books and buy that and have it so that I can get it signed when they get in town, that kind of thing. That's where I'm the most intentional is with books. But one of my favorites is was, again, it was gifted to me about a few years ago. Geely and I did the, you know, Illinois, their Anderson's YA conference. Mm-hmm. And Gila and I did the Anderson's YA conference. While we were there, we did this panel. And this is, we were promoting at the time, I'm not dying with you tonight. Mm-hmm. And we did this panel and this teacher from Ferguson, Missouri, stood up. Older white man. He was, he was the chorus teacher at that school. And he stood up and he said, I, I, I don't teach English. I don't teach anything. I'm the chorus teacher. Mm-hmm. But my kids, I could see a loss of light in my kids after the riots in yeah. because they lasted so long and mm-hmm. they, it was our community was so affected in a way that I don't think people outside of our community realizes. Yeah. And he said, I started a book club. I had never, you know, done a book club with my chorus kids or whatever. Yeah. He said, I started a book club and what we read was I'm not dying with you tonight, which of course of people have not read it is a, the story of two young women, one black and one white who survived the night. Mm-hmm. Um, riots and civil unrest. And so he said, my kids had never had a space to process. They had been in middle school, you know, middle school or elementary school when Ferguson happened. And now he was teaching at high school. And he said they had no way to process what Mm -hmm. they lived through and nobody was asking them how it affected them or what it was like to try to get home from school that first night in the Mm -hmm. midst of civil unrest. And he said, so we read I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. And he said, and for the first time, Via the words on your pages, my kids got an opportunity to process. And so he stood up and said that at the panel. And of course, Geely and I are bawling. Sobbing. You know, the rest of the panel is sobbing. The whole audience is sobbing. And so later that night, we were going to dinner. We were at the hotel and we're standing in the lobby. And he came down and he saw me and he said, I'm leaving in the morning but I'm so glad that I caught you. Are you on your way out? And I'm like, yeah, we're just on our way out to dinner, but we'll be back. And he goes, well, I'm leaving in the morning. So, hey, if you could hang on for a second, I have something for you. I want to run upstairs and go grab it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, sure. And earlier that day, the conference had had this amazing auction. I mean, I'm talking like auctioning, like first print, first edition copies of like Harry Potter books, like this auction of books. And at the time, you and I were new authors. These books were not in our price range. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Uh, uh, We didn't, we didn't even go look. We were like, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll let, we'll let Rick Ryan and he's here. Let him go. Uh Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, And so he comes back downstairs And he said, me and the other teachers from Ferguson got together at the auction and we bought this. And I was like, again, uncontrollable sobbing, bunch of other authors around me. They're crying. He's crying. We're all crying. It was a signed first edition 
first printing of Tar Baby. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. Oh, my God. <laughs> How did they even have that available? That's amazing. Yes, it was a signed first edition, first printing of Toni Morrison's Tar Baby. And they gave it to me as a gift. And she passed away a month later. Mm-hmm. Oh, so for collecting books like that, because I'm I'm the same way, like I, for a while, and I'm sure now that I'm doing another book podcast, like I would get sent, <laughs> you know, you know this and being yeah. in the book world, like you just get sent arcs. And like, even, you're speaking of I'm not dying with you tonight, like you're the publisher for that source books. And I love the source books team, but like they would send me like three copies of an arc. And then I would see you guys in person. And Margaret, who's wonderful, would be like, here's another copy. <laughs> be like, Margaret, I have like six of these now. But like, to me... All of my signed copies of books are, are probably worthless because A, they're advanced reader copies, but like to me, the ones that mean the most to me are books that like I I think the reason I love doing conversations like these is like because mm-hmm. we like I get to have a moment with my buddy here and then people are gonna like hear it. But for me, like you're super busy. And so like it's really cool for me to be like, I'm gonna grab Kim for an hour and I get to talk to her for an hour. Like that's why <laughs> these conversations mean so much to me. And then by extension, the rare times when I get to do them in person, which is so rare now. But like, yeah, I remember like the first time I ever knew, interviewed any author is in person. It was Marika Niekamp and it was for oh um, This Is Where It Ends. It was before her first book ever came out. And I remember reading it. It was before I'd ever done an author interview. And oh, I went no. up to my kind of like and I sort of I think I told you this about I'm not dying with you. And like I went up to my director and I was like, I've never done an interview before. But like this, whoever this person is, this book is going to be a New York Times bestseller. And like, I don't I don't know why I knew that. But yeah. I interviewed them. And they wrote on the, they wrote, uh, you know, thanks for the wonderful interview, always choose hope. And like, I kept that in my desk and then it became a New York Times bestseller. And like, that meant so much to me. And then the first time I sat down with you and Geely, yeah. you guys both signed one and you were like, you know, it was, you wrote something about like talking about the Muppets and all these things. And like, so I have that one. And then there's, I interviewed Lee Bardugo when Crooked Kingdom came out and it was like right around the same, she had been in Cleveland and like, for some random reason, her publicist was like, this is weird, but do you mind doing the interview like in her hotel room with me? So I'm like hanging out in Lee Bardugo's hotel room <laughs> with her agent. And like, then I drove her to this library event that I also like moderated for. It was just like one of the, it's just like one of those things where like, if I explained to someone like, yeah, I hung out with Lee Bardugo in her hotel room for like four hours. Like there's no yeah. one creepy way to say that except for the exactly. true way. But like, she she told me while we were talking about at the time she had written a Wonder Woman book that like no one knew about. And she like signed the book to me. She's like, you were the like first person who knew about Wonder Woman or something. And like, so to me, the books that I have that are signed that mean a lot to me, like they're not really worth anything. But like, I remember the moment in time when I met you and Geely. And like, that's why that book is so important to me. And same thing with like Marika and all these different authors. So like for you to get, I mean, obviously... I know why getting Tar Baby is amazing. <laughs> but like when you collect a book, is it to remember a moment in time? Is it because that particular author meant so much to you? Like what is it for you to, when you're collecting books that's like why you do it? It started as it, it started as a moment in time, right? Mm-hmm. It started as like, I freaking love, you know, Angie Thomas. So I, I want, you know, a signed copy of The Hate You Give. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It started as that, but now it has come, become a little bit of a legacy project for me yeah. as something that, um, because it's funny, like I think about, I think about like family heirlooms, right? And like, I've watched that trope on TV of the family heirloom that this, <laughs> this pearl necklace belonged to my great, great, great grandmother. And she brought it over and she crossed Ellis Island with it and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, 
I don't have any of that. Like, I don't have anything. My family didn't have anything that we, well, we do have one thing that I'm actually about to go to court and fight for. So I'll tell you that because that is something else I plan to. Uh Um, But other than this, this one thing that I just found out about a few years ago that I'm about to go to court and fight for, my family didn't have anything. There weren't any pearls that were passed down or family plates or mm-hmm. anything like that. And so I thought about the, I was, I was at a, I don't know where I was at. I was at some lecture listening um, to someone, some great orator that was speaking. And they said that you are your great, great grandkids ancestor. Mm-hmm. And I, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was just like, Oh my God, I never thought about it. Yeah. That way that some kid four generations from now who will never get to meet me, who will only hear about me in conversation or story, to them, I am, I, I am, I am going to be at some point someone's ancestor. And so this longing that I had to feel like my family had something, an heirloom, something of of value. I'm like, oh my God, I can make it start with me. Mm-hmm. I can be become now that ancestor for some kid 50 years from now, 100 years from now. You know, I got serious about collecting books. Mm -hmm. And now it is about having something to pass down, having a library of like real value Mm -hmm. that my great, great, great grandkid will be able to have in their home and say, my great, great, great grandmother, Kimberly Latrice Jones, who was an author, loved books. And she left us this amazing collections of fine first editions. We'll be back with more passions and prologues after this break. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. And now, back to Passions and Prologues. The only example that I have from my family is uh, my father's mother. She had um, like water on the brain when I was in like, like when I was like an early teen and even earlier than then. So I don't have a lot of memories of her because she had like dementia for a long time before she passed away. And after she passed, my aunt was like, do you, you know, your aunt Lily or your grandma Lily was like a voracious reader. And like, it was obvious that that I was like after college. And so I was kind of like a baby version of, of Adam at that point. She's like, do you want to go through her books? I know that you're like the biggest reader in the family. It's like, absolutely. And I loved Russian literature. I was like a weird college kid who loved Russian literature. Like, I feel like no one should like Russian literature until they're like 72. But I liked it when I was in college. And like, I go in and she has this this collection of these super old Dostoevsky's or like Ibsen's plays and like all these different Russian like greats that I didn't know she had. 
and they're absolutely like they're literally like library copies that she never returns so they are not worth anything but like to me they're super important and to like you know my you know ancestors on the line like they're gonna matter because they were grandma lilies from you know like the 1940s when she had them and like i literally i remember looking i was like oh my god maybe these are like valuable and then i looked them up and i was like no they're like literally the library copies but even (laughs) they matter to me and i know that they'll matter exactly they'll they'll matter to the next generation and it's funny the thing that i'm getting ready to go to court to fight for is found out that one of my cousins lost a family heirloom that we actually had in his divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, that it had been in our family for over well over a hundred years. It has stayed in our family line for well over a hundred years. And when he got divorced, his wife really, really wanted it, which takes it out of the family line for the first time in over a century. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, I don't mean to be awful to that woman, but like, I need that back in our family line. Like our family has for a very long time Mm -hmm. and I want to get it back. So apparently, this is some good tea. (laughs) Apparently during the Civil War, my family owned a very infamous brothel. Really? Yes. My family owned a very infamous brothel during the Civil War, which so which serviced soldiers, both Confederate and Union soldiers. Oh, my gosh. And so what we have and we have the paperwork to authenticate it is that we still had all the furniture from the brothel. Oh, my God. Yeah. All the furniture from the brothel, which was... Um, the receipts and the paperwork and they'd been authenticated by people before over the years. Yes. From the civil war, my family still had the furniture from our brothel and it had been passed down through the line since the civil war. And so for the first time, four years ago, due to a divorce, it left the family line. So now I'm going to court to get it back. Where does that even, apropos of nothing, where does one even store that? I got to figure it all out because fingers crossed I'm going to win it back. I don't know if I am, but I'm going to try. Man, okay. That's (laughs) crazy interesting. I was going to ask you, what's the strangest thing you have collected or are collecting? But I feel like you're not going to be able to beat that. But like other than... (laughs) Other than brothel furniture. furniture, Like what's the craziest (laughs) thing that that Kimberly Jones is collecting. Man, how do I be? I think brothel furniture might be. I mean, it has to, there's no, like, no matter what you're about to say to me right now. Well, I can't think of anything that I, that I have collected yet that is odd, but now I feel challenged to do that because everything else that I'm collecting is like pretty like stereotypical collector things. Like I, you know, art, I have like a bunch of some really amazing art. I have, Mm -hmm. I have an original, um, Panhandle Slim and uh, different artists like that that I have. Um, I have a I have an original Hubert Neal and a Frank Morrison and yeah. Um, and yeah. So I can't think of anything I think that I collect that is odd. I collect family photos. Okay, this is one. Here's here's one that people will would not expect from me. Uh-huh. I can tell you that I collect antique weapons. You have lived the most interesting life. On, <laughs> you when you were so for people who don't, I don't, I don't know why the crossover. I also host a podcast for my company that Kim came on a couple weeks ago, and we were going through Kim's like history of her life and the things. <laughs> 
that she talked about. And so this doesn't surprise me at all, but it <laughs> might surprise the listeners, but okay. <laughs> Antique weapons. What are we talking about? What do we got? Antique weapons. You know what? I think I have one here. So this, this is a pistol. It doesn't even work. I just collected it because it's old. Like this is a, this, like this pistol was fashioned. Oh, it's so tiny. It's so tiny. Yes. It was fashioned. This is from the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. And this was created specifically, it is a Derringer, it is a Derringer Cobra that shoots like nine millimeters bullets that was created strictly for women. Yeah. Like, for example, maybe people working in a brothel. I'm just saying. Exactly. That's exactly who it was for. Because it was designed for, it was designed for you to take out someone who was close up on you. Mm -hmm. Someone who was like attacking you. But they they specifically marketed it towards the ladies. Yeah. So this is like a hundred year old pistol. It still has, and the craftsmanship on it is still beautiful. Real wood handle and all of that. So I think people would be surprised that I collect antique weapons. And also because I'm like, so like, I'm like a so pro gun control. Yeah. And I'm like, but also I collect antique weapons. So, and I have like, I have samurai swords. I have um, stars. I have all this like weird Uh stuff. And how I got into Again, this is something that just happened from enjoyment. I had a really dear friend in L.A. I lived in L.A. for about five years when I was trying to break into the film industry. And I had a friend who was a stunt guy. And he and I were obsessed with, like, martial arts films at the mm-hmm. time. And, like, we thought we were, like, we were, like, so goof troopy. We just, like, thought we lived in, like, a... An, um, like a samurai movie. Uh-huh. And he had this epic collection of like samurai swords and stuff like that, that I was completely enamored with. So he gifted me one of them mm-hmm. and that started yeah. that collection. And so it graduated from swords to antique guns. I even have an inactive grenade <laughs> from the revolutionary war. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the, the, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the more like odd things uh, that I collect. I think that would be the most surprising to people. Yeah. Um, I think that one would be the most surprising to people, but yeah, like I, I just, I just, Lord, I have to like, I, I feel like I have to get like on track of like having a thing, but it's like, I find things and I love them. And then I just start building. Yeah. So I have like different sets of collections. So it's like, I have books and weaponry and art and then random stuff like the collector's <laughs> card. Here's another one that I have a huge collection of. And this is, this is the one and like the cabbage patch dolls and all that stuff. Yeah. This is though, this, this next thing is the one thing that I know like has zero value. Uh-huh. I just like them and I just like to collect them. So Kim is holding up there. I know there's a specific name for these fans. What are those actually called? I have no idea. They're like the, like the fold out fans that you would see, like, um, like a geisha using. Yeah, they're like hand fans. Yeah. And I actually saw you when we first hopped on, you were, you were holding it and I was like, I think she's got like a specific hand fan right now. It's fantastic. Yes. And I've learned how to to manage them. Yeah, I mean, it. The, the sound is so soothing. It's very delightful. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, oh, I love that so much. Uh, do you think this collecting, like, bleeds into or helps or inspires your writing? And anyway, like, do you think there's a connection at all? Or is... Yes, because it's like 8,000 people live in my head at all times. Uh-huh. And so these different people live in these different worlds, and these things mean something to them. Like... You know, the girl who has the hand fan, <laughs> very different from the lady who has, who is obsessed with hip hop. Yeah. Very different with the lady who 
you know, uh, collects fine art mm-hmm. and the childlike girl who, you know, like I I can even see their outfits, right? Like the girl who still has the Cabbage Patch doll yeah. probably is wearing like glitter sneakers and a tutu mm-hmm. and a big bow in her hair. Whereas the girl who collects the Yo! MTV rap cards has like a hoodie and denim jeans and very like high-end sneakers. That's who you need to get on this call next. Either either Nick Stone or Angie Thomas, because they're they are complete sneakerheads, and both of them, their sneaker collection is insane. Like it's and it's actually like a fun war between the two of them because they yeah. try to out sneaker each other. <laughs> but I think Nick may be winning the sneaker contest right now because she has some kind of like arrangement or situation with StockX. Uh-huh. So she's reached the height of sneakerdom. But yeah, I feel like all of these characters are very different people. Uh, you know, the woman who collects fine art enjoys uh, caviar and a and a and a in home manicurist. You yeah. know what I mean? They're like all different people, and it's funny because the only other person that I've met that has a really extensive uh, weapon collection and is also someone that you would not expect to have that. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. As well as I know her name, I can't think of her name right now, but she wrote the Sookie Chronicles. Oh, oh, oh. Um, Char- uh, Charlene Harris. Charlene Harris. Yes. Yeah, so I was on a panel with her and she talked about her weapon collection. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. Charlene. First of all, Charlene Harris talked about stuff on that panel that was the best, best day of my life. All I can say is there was a story told about a stripper in a kiddie pool, and I'll leave it at that. She is hilarious. She is so hilarious. Oh my God, I love her so much. I'm so obsessed with her. I only met her that once when I got to do that panel with her, but it was it was yeah. like the best day of my life. But I heard her talk about, or she also has a weapon collection. Yeah. She just looks like your sweet, average, <laughs> uh, middle America Gigi, who's like baking cookies, and then uh-huh. she like launched into the story about her weapon collection, and I was like, "That's it, I love this woman. I'm gonna marry her." Well, because she wrote her like most recent series of books. I don't know if she's still writing them. Is about like um like an like an Annie Oakley type, like a mm-hmm. like a, a cow like a female cow like a cowgirl. I'm I'm like it's like a she's like a shooter. Some kind. I don't remember what it is, but it's almost yeah. like a wild wild west type of a thing. So I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's she's I think an awesome. So yeah. So now I have to find something really kooky to collect but i feel like the brothel furniture is going to cover that yeah i mean you're good you have brothel you have brothel furniture i think you got the kooky stuff <laughs> figured out are you because you're always doing a million things are you working on any book stuff that you're allowed to talk about right now i am the biggest project that i'm working on right now is i'm writing my mother's biography yeah i'm talk. writing my mom's biography and i'm so excited about that because again you talk about somebody who had a crazy lived experience I, clearly the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And I think, I think my mother wins. I think between the two of us <laughs> in terms of like a wild lived experience, I think yeah. my mother wins the contest. My mother, I'll just tell you guys a little bit about her and yeah. who she was. My mom, she was super smart. Um, she integrated her high school and then she went on to, you know, she graduated valedictorian. She graduated two years early because she was so smart. They you know, back then, if you were super smart, they didn't know what to do with you. They just skip you. Send you off. Yeah. And just skip you off to the next grade. And so that happened to her twice, once in elementary school and once in middle school. So she graduated from high school at 16. She graduated two years early and she went on to um, college. She wanted to be a teacher and she knew she was she definitely knew that she was smarter than that. But at that time, you know, we're talking the 1950s. There wasn't there were definitely African-American women who were doing amazing things, but it there was a, a, not a whole lot 
of visuals of that for young mm-hmm. girls to grow up with. And so like, you know, kind of the top tier that you could look at um, for young girls back then, young Black girls back then was to be either a teacher or a nurse. Yeah. My mom just loved history. And so she decided she wanted to be a history teacher. So she went to Chicago's teacher college and then she met this amazing, handsome man from Louisiana with a Louisiana accent that just charmed the pants off of her and my dad. Mm -hmm. And she got married really young. She got married like her freshman year of college and they immediately became pregnant with my brother or I'm now learning as I get older that they maybe became pregnant with my brother first. But <laughs> her and my dad got married and so she didn't get a chance to finish college. So after my brother, you know, was like about six months old, she needed a job. And my grandmother, who for the record was a minister. Incredible. Very important to the story. My grandmother, who was a minister, my mom's mom, had a friend who worked for this man. And so now we're talking like like maybe like 19, the early 1960s or whatever. Mm-hmm. My mom, my grandma had a, had a friend who worked for this man and my grandma asked the friend, could she get my mom a job at this place? And my, my grandma's, my grandma's friend was like, yeah, sure. I'll totally get her an interview and get her a job. It was the Playboy Mansion. Incredible. <laughs> So this is when this is before Hef moves to LA. This is when the Playboy Mansion is in Chicago, uh-huh. the original one. So my mother was one of the original waitresses at the Playboy Mansion, right? Oh my gosh! And she hated it because we have to keep in mind this is at a time where SA is just accepted behavior. I mean, mm-hmm. guys are just like patting you on the bottom and at work, and it's par for the course and so she loathed it right she didn't like working there and so she was on a massive hunt for another job she wanted to get out of there she didn't last there long she wanted to get out of there and she got hired at sears Mm because they were headquartered in chicago and this is before the sears tower they hadn't even built the sears tower yet she was so they they this is when catalogs were really big and she got a job working in catalogs and make a long story short too late she's uh, <laughs> she she got a job working at Sears. She integrated her department at Sears. They actually had to have a meeting with the white women in her department to ask them if they would be okay with black women working there. Okay. And they said yes. And they hired her and two other black women to integrate this department. And she said that her coworkers were fine. They were mm-hmm. like, you know, she didn't have any issues or anything like that. But it was her boss, the woman who was over the department, yeah. who was like blatantly racist and like awful to her. But my mom just was always a hard worker and she worked her way up and eventually they built the Sears Tower. And when they built the Sears Tower, by this time, my mother was like managing departments and doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they sent her over to the Sears Tower to be the mailroom supervisor. And it's funny because she talks about, I have recordings of her talking about this. She talks about how whenever they would give one of these positions to one of the white women, that it would be a management position. But whenever they would give it to black women, then it would become a supervisor. Right. Because the supervisor was A, less prestigious, and B, came with less pay, right? Yeah. So she would always get these supervisor positions, but she would be in management, but she would be a supervisor. Mm-hmm. So they made her the supervisor over the mailroom at the newly built Sears Tower. Speaking of things that collect, she left us. Um, my brother has it. I'm trying to convince him to give it to me. They, She has one of the original bricks from the original build of the Sears Tower. That's so cool. 
Yeah, so she has a brick from it. And she also had a model that they had made, a bronze model that they had made that they gave to all the supervisors. And so my son has that. He keeps it in his dorm room. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and then they had like a something hundredth year anniversary book that I have. I have the the Sears, like the history of the Sears Tower book. Mm-hmm. Um, well, history of the company of Sears book or whatever. Um, so we have all this Sears paraphernalia because of my mom. The efficiency was very slow. Mm-hmm. And like mail didn't, there's no internet or anything like that. Mail right. was like the only way that you got information. And so you're talking about the at the time, the tallest office building in the world. So mail might come in on Monday. You might not get it till Friday, but it might have been time sensitive to where you needed to see it. Yeah. Like Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So it was like messing things up and they didn't want to give her a bigger staff. So my mother works with these engineers who had been doing another project with Sears um, from this company called Bell and Howe. Mm -hmm. And they programmed and built robots that could deliver the mail. So oh they, they built the robots. My mother programmed it. This is in 1976. It's incredible. Yeah. They, it's 1976. They built them. My mother programmed them. These robots that d- could deliver the mail, original AI work, right? The, the robots knew which floor they were on. And so they would dump the, it looks like, if you call it robots, but it looks like a big moving file cabinet, right? Yeah. Um, and they gave them all names, which she has a funny story about that. And these robots, so what would happen was instead of half of her staff sorting the mail while other half delivered, the entire, she didn't have to hire new staff, the entirety yeah. of the staff could sort and load the robots and then just send the robots upstairs to deliver the mail. That's amazing. Yeah. And so the book is called The Robot Lady. Oh my God, that's so cool. Oh, that's, am- oh, that's going to be so good. I cannot <laughs> wait to read that. It sounds amazing. <laughs> Uh, Kim, you're super busy. So I am like, I want the last question for you. I ask everybody yeah. on their way out um, just for like one recommendation. It could be a book. It could be a sandwich shop. It could be a, a new album. It, it could be a TV show. But it's just like one recommendation of a thing that you're loving lately that you think more people should know about. It is the HBO Max series Minx. <laughs> I'm hearing everyone talk about how much I love Minx. I freaking love me. Well, can I have two then? One is Minx. Um, I think everybody should go and watch Minx. It's absolutely amazing. And I think that more people should read one of my idols. I think her, I think people recognize her as one of the greats, but I think they recognize her after they hear it. If you say her name, then people are like, oh yeah, of course, obviously her. Mm -hmm. But she's not a person who people think of first. And I want people to think of her first more as Zora Neale Hurston. Yes, I completely agree. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, Kim, You, th- I've gotten to talk to you a couple of times now the past few weeks, which makes <laughs> very good weeks. I love you so much. Thank you for doing oh, this. Thank you, you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my 
favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paperfold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.